Two sisters work tirelessly to keep their brother from dying. He's just become ill, but the sickness is violent and quick-moving. As they wipe sweat from his brow and clean up his vomit, they hold out hope. They've sent word to a healer. And certainly, he will be there soon. Their brother dies. And the questions start. How could God let this happen? Where was Jesus when their brother needed him most? We're going to be in John 11 this morning. And in this passage, we are told a wonderful true story about love, death, and the glory of God. In it, we see two major lessons. The the first and preeminent is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The second, and perhaps harder truth to swallow, is that God uses suffering to produce glory. Main idea this morning, what I want you to walk out of service pondering is this. God redeems suffering. And I want to exhort you this morning to behold and be thrilled by the glory of God. Before we pray and get into the text, though, I want to, at the front end here, make a brief theological case for suffering so that you can kind of put it in the background of your mind and mull over it as we work through the text together. First is this. Suffering is our fault. Suffering exists Because we, in our past, and Adam, and ourselves, chose to rebel against God. Suffering is the curse that is due our sin coming upon us. I think fundamentally people usually come at the question of suffering asking kind of the wrong question, holding the wrong presupposition. Usually the question goes like this, why do bad things happen? To good people. But biblically speaking, this is the wrong question. The Bible says, why do good things happen to bad people? You see, the Bible doesn't really wrestle with the existence of evil and suffering. It recognizes that those are the consequence of human rebellion. The Bible more wrestles with and marvels at the mercy of God. This idea is uh, illustrated well a long time ago now. A newspaper sent out a question to various authors, and they asked, what is wrong with the world? And the theologian G.K. Chesterton responded, in regards to your question, what is wrong with the world, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And his point was that he shares in the culpability of the human race, that he is a sinner, 
and that the suffering and the evil that are in the world, what's truly wrong with the world is the consequence of human rebellion. Sin is our fault. That's number one. Number two, God suffers for us. God suffers for us. Suffering is at the very heart of the gospel. We screw everything up. We usher in brokenness to the world, and we deserve to suffer. But God, instead of allowing us to bear the fullness of that pain, the fullness of the curse, reverses the curse. Jesus Christ takes on flesh and lives a perfect life in our place, dies a substitutionary death in our place, and rises from the dead to prove his person and his power, his ability to deliver from sin. And thirdly, God produces glory from suffering. And so if you want to remember them really quick, I'll just rehearse them once more. Suffering's our fault. God enters into our suffering. And God produces from suffering glory. Let's pray and get into the text. Father, we rejoice this morning because Jesus rose from the dead. We celebrate this truth not just once a year, but every week when we gather. We thank you that Jesus turned death from a gardener or from an executioner into a gardener. Dead Christians are not laid to rest. They are planted. And one day, when Christ returns, they will raise up. Thank you for this glorious truth, this hope that is certain for the happily ever after we all long for. God, speak to us in your word now. Captivate our attention for these next moments. Help me to preach a better sermon than I prepared. Let your words be heard on my voice. Let the hearts of the dead quicken and come to life. Let the spirits of your saints be encouraged as you fill this place with your spirit. God, we ask you to move this morning, and we expect it. We expect to meet you here in your word. We know you won't disappoint. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So to give you a little bit of context as we kind of drop into the middle of a book, which is not our pattern, we're in John chapter 11, and Jesus has been doing all these signs to prove that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is who he says he is. And in chapter 10, just prior to chapter 11, Jesus is saying some of these things, and uh, would you know it, when you claim to be God among Jews, they, they think that's blasphemous, and they don't like it. And so they tried to stone Jesus and tried to arrest Jesus, and they failed. And Jesus and his entourage 
have fled out of the region of Judea. Their wanted posters are up there. And, and they've not been away too long when a messenger approaches. Verse 1. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. What Jesus is saying is that I got work to do, y'all, and so I am going to do it. The sun has not yet set on my ministry. We are walking during the day. Let's go. Verse 11, he said this, and then he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, completely ignoring Jesus' poetic flair, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll get well. It's good for sick people to rest. Verse 13, Jesus, however, was speaking about his death but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go so that we may die with him. A quick sidebar here, I love Thomas's enthusiasm. They're going back into this region where uh, Jesus and his entourage are kind of wanted, dead or alive, that they're desperados, and Thomas is like, let's go. I'm ready to die for you, Jesus. Like, we, we ride together, we die together. He's ready. It really is a shame that we know him as the doubter, isn't it? Maybe you can relate to Thomas a little bit, filled with courage and faith one moment and then completely empty of it the next. And I fear that uh, if many of our spiritual lives were cataloged as Thomas's is, that we too might be known as the doubter. Or, or maybe if we were cataloged like Peter, we would be known as the denier. Or perhaps like the rest of the disciples as those who deserted Jesus. I, I, one of the things I love about Jesus, let me tell you about my friend Jesus. I love him. I love him because he's always understanding. 
And he, even though you will screw up so much in this life, he doesn't, you know, tisk tisk you, turn his shoulder to you, or label you and make fun of you. He, Jesus is, is never going to call you the denier, the doubter, or the deserter. He, he's only going to call you his beloved. He's awesome. All right, that's the end of that little excursus. What's going on here? Jesus has left. A messenger shows up and says, you need to come back. Lazarus is sick. And what John wants us to see in these first three verses of chapter 11 is this is not a stranger asking Jesus for help. Those strangers have received help from Jesus, have they not? I mean, y'all remember, I think it was the centurion shows up and he's like, yeah, I got a sick guy. Uh, Can you heal him? And Jesus is like, yeah, he'll be healed. I'm not even going to go there. Guy gets healed. I mean, Jesus is a you know, uh, blind guy by the road. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Healed. Jesus heals strangers. How much more will he heal those he knows and loves? Look, look how much he loves this family. John's really bringing this out in verse 2. He talks about Mary being the one who uh, washes Jesus with perfume and, and wipes his feet with her hair. In John, that story hasn't happened yet. It's coming down the road. And John is trying to show us the intense affection that Jesus has for this family. They are tight. Then in verse 4, you see Lazarus is even identified not by name, but as the one you love. The one you love is sick. And so, verse 5, because Jesus loves Mary Martha and Lazarus. So, verse 6, he teleports to Lazarus' bedside and heals him. He, he loves this family, and so he sprints all the way there, and he makes Lazarus better. He loves him so much that he just does one of those casual healings and says, he'll be well, go back home. No, Jesus loves this family, and so... Something must be wrong with my Bible. And so he does nothing. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He stays two more days in the place where he was. And Lazarus dies. Why? Why does Jesus do this? Verse 4. This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I mean, at this point, Jesus looks like a liar because Lazarus is dead. How could this be for God's glory? This doesn't make any sense. If Jesus loves this family, why did he stay where he was? How is this loving? The clear but kind of hard to swallow answer is that Jesus is giving those around him what they need most. A glimpse of the glory of God. Yes, Lazarus is dead, and people will suffer, 
But as a result of Lazarus' death, as a result of their suffering, they will see the glory of God. And God's glory always outweighs suffering. It's hard to suffer. Mary, Martha, those around us, still, it's not making sense right now, but, but it will. I think the way that Jesus uses Lazarus' death to bring glory to God is the same way that he uses this blind man in chapter 9. What, what happens is this guy's been blind since birth many years. He's an adult. He's been begging. And Jesus comes along and he heals him. And the answer is so that God's glory could be shown in his life. That's why he was born blind. And the blind man, for the vast majority of his life, went around probably asking questions like, why was I born blind? I can't see a reason for this suffering. But then when Jesus opened his eyes, he saw clearly the glory of God. Likewise, the, the reason for Lazarus' death is not immediately clear, but it will be. You see, God always produces glory from Suffering. One of my favorite passages comes when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 16. This is what he writes. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Listen to verse 17. For our momentary light affliction, he's talking about suffering there, is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Now, Paul doesn't write this as kind of like flippantly as someone who's never suffered. Paul knows what it is to suffer. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten within an inch of his life. He's been stoned. He's gone hungry. He's even had a thorn in his flesh given to him that he's begged God to take away, and God gave him the answer, no, my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul knows what it is to suffer and to feel like he doesn't have an answer for the suffering, but you know what Paul does is in those sufferings, he doesn't abandon God or run away from God. He presses into God and he trusts him because he knows the character of God. It's akin to a child who is afraid of monsters in their room at night. Their fear is legitimate. And they come downstairs and they say to uh, their daddy, there are monsters up there. What are you going to do about it? And the father could explain to the child all the reasons why those things that he fears aren't really a threat to him. But even if the child knows that he shouldn't be afraid, that's not going to quite do the trick. You see, what the child needs is for the father to take his hand in his own and to walk into the darkness with him. Likewise for us, in our sufferings, we don't always have all the answers. And even if we did, they probably wouldn't do us much good. What we need in our suffering is the presence of God. We need Him to take us by the hand and to walk through the darkness 
with us. We need him to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with us. can't see what he's doing in our circumstances all the time. We're, we're too short-sighted. And Mary and Martha, as Lazarus lays dead, well, they can't, they can't see what God is doing. I want to exhort you, even when you can't see what God is doing, trust him. Never doubt in the darkness what God has promised in the light. He keeps his word. Mary and Martha are, are struggling, though. They're, they're asking those questions that we all ask when suffering comes upon us. How could you let this happen, God? Where were you, Jesus? And initially, Jesus, as he goes to Judea, he meets with Martha and has a conversation there, and we're going to return to that in a second. But, but right now, I want you to drop down to verse 28 where he uh, meets with Mary. He just finished a conversation with Martha. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to cry there. And as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let me translate. Where were you? When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? Lord, come and see Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying. Jesus weeps. Why? I mean, doesn't he know he's going to just resurrect Lazarus pretty soon here? Why the tears? Two reasons. Death stings and Jesus sympathizes. Death stings. All right? If you think that Lazarus' death is no big deal and they shouldn't really be mourning, you're out of your mind. And here's how I'll show you. Think about it this way. Uh, if one of your relatives dies, do you not mourn? Would you not mourn over, or be upset over at least, your own death? Not really a big deal. No, it is a big deal. If you are a Christian, Jesus is going to raise you up and raise your loved one up just like he did Lazarus here. It's going to be better, but, but he's going to raise him up. The only difference between Lazarus, well, there's two differences. The, the, the only difference between Lazarus and your loved one or you in the grave and a resurrection is time. And so you see that losing someone to death is a big deal. Death is a siren song. It is a, a loud proclamation 
to all of us that we have rebelled against God. We mustn't distract ourselves from the reality of our mortality. Death comes for us all. And it is a big deal. We Christians believe that death is unnatural. And that maturity is not found in learning to accept it or to distract ourselves from it, but in trusting the one who has promised to raise us out of it. Death is a big deal. It it stings. It's right to mourn and to weep and to hurt. And secondly, we see Jesus do like that, do just that. He sympathizes. He mourns with those who mourn. He hurts with those who hurts. Jesus is the God who suffers with us. He, even though he knows that the end for those who love him is the new heavens and the new earth, even though he knows the end is glory, he holds tightly the sobbing mother who has lost her child. He kisses tenderly the forehead of the child who's lost a parent. He squeezes the hand of the man whose body is riddled with cancer and is crying out to die. Jesus mourns with those who mourns. He sympathizes. He hates sin. He hates the curse. He hates suffering. Yes, he'll produce glory from it, but that doesn't keep him from entering into it with us. When you are suffering, Jesus is with you. He's not a God that looks at a distance and goes, man, I really wish there was something I can do. No, he puts his arm around you. And it's often in the cellar of affliction that we discover the finest wines. It's often when life is most bitter that we discover Jesus is most sweet. Sometimes God is kind enough to give us a small glimpse of his glory in our suffering. Yes, we don't usually get the big picture, all the answers. You have to wait till resurrection to see how he's going to turn it into glory for you. But sometimes we get small glimpses. One of the times I remember getting just a a fresh sense of God's glory is before I was the pastor here, I was in a congregation in Raleigh, and there was a woman who was in my small group, and she was married to a seminary student. He was getting ready to go into ministry. She was in her mid-20s. They had three kids. Uh, they decided that she would stay home while he went to work. And one day, he left. Never came back. He abandoned the faith. He abandoned her. I mean, he took everything. And here she sat, uh, jobless and head spinning, three boys to take care of. And she thought, what am I going Where are you, Jesus? And time would tell that he was right there with her. The the church, it, it was amazing to watch the church display God's glory and serve this woman. I mean, you talk to her and she'll tell you. And she'd come home and there's groceries and diapers on the doorstep. Just after she'd been praying, God, I can't afford food. I I don't know what I'm going to do. And she arrives to his provision. The church came around her, helped her get a job and to pursue a career. 
And yes, the, the suffering, that the effects of that still hurt. But in that situation, I saw a glimpse of glory. A, a preview of what is to come when the resurrection comes. Or, or even more recently here, I've seen on numerous occasions as we've walked through death, just this past week, we mourned together with the family of Ollie Fitzgerald, and I saw you all come to the family and offer comfort, put your arm around them. This is a picture of the glory of God. The church acting as the hands of Christ to comfort those who are suffering and to remind them of the hope and the promise that is coming. Perhaps you're in a situation right now and you just can't, can't see what good would come from it. Look for glimpses of God's glory. Look for the fine wine that's hidden on the shelf down in that cellar. Meet with God. Hold his hand as you walk through the darkness and trust him that glory is coming. God suffers with us. Now, we're going to drop down to verse 46, and something important happens. If you're not familiar with the story, I don't want to ruin it for you, but Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. That's what happens. And after he raises Lazarus from the dead, something unexpected happens. Not everyone there believes in him. This is, this is what happens. Listen to verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin. And we're saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And then verse 53 kind of sums it all up. So from that day on, they plotted to kill Jesus. You see, Jesus ends Lazarus' funeral at the expense of starting his own. These events lead directly to his own crucifixion, his own death, and his own resurrection. You see, these Pharisees that resolve to put an end to Jesus, they understand better than most of us what, what Jesus is saying what Jesus means. They understood that you can't keep Jesus around and stick to business as usual. They understood that Jesus is not just an auxiliary part of life, that when Jesus is around, he changes everything. I mean, do, do you understand the radical claims of Jesus? Number one, I am God. That's a pretty big one. He also claims that you are dead. And that you need new life. He claims that you are dead and that you need a new heart. He claims that you must be born again. He claims that he's the only one that can give you a new heart. That he's the only one that can give you the newness of life. That he's the only one that can cause you to be born again. And the Pharisees understand this and they say, 
He's never going to get his hands on the lives that we've built as monuments to ourselves. He's never going to get my life. That's not going to happen. I'll kill him before that happens because I like my life. I love my sin. And he's not going to change things. He's not going to take my social status from me. We'll kill him. Maybe some of you are like, well, I'm not really that bad like the, the Pharisees. I would, you know, I'd probably believe in this cross and resurrection stuff if there was more evidence. Friend, that's just simply not true. There is a mountain of evidence proving the historicity of the resurrection uh, to the extent that other explanations of Jesus' resurrection are quite farcical. I mean, one is that he wasn't really dead by the professional killers on the cross when he died. The Romans messed up and the nails, and the spear, and all that. It wasn't enough to kill him. And once he was laid in that tomb, a breeze came by and resuscitated him. And then he ran seven miles to present himself to the disciples and tricked everybody that he had resurrected. That's a legitimate scholarly option. That's taught in the universities. I know, I learned it. It's one of many that is just plain silly. The best evidence points to a truth that is staggering. That the resurrection actually happened. More evidence won't convince you, friend. You say, well, maybe if I would have been there, I I would believe. No. This story is a testimony to that fact. You see, the problem is that we really are dead in our sins. And the only thing that can make dead people come to life is a miracle. It takes a miracle for people like you and me to turn from our sins and follow Jesus. It takes a miracle for us to stop following our hearts and to start striving to follow after the heart of God. And lucky for us, Jesus traffics in the miraculous. My prayer is that he would bring life to some who are dead here this morning. That you would hear his word and believe. At any rate, the the religious leaders and the Pharisees here, they mean the death of Jesus for evil. But God means for the death of Jesus to crush evil. They're going to kill Jesus on the cross, yes, but it's at the cross where we see God's justice and his mercy meet. It's at the cross where we see God turn suffering into glory. You see, what happens at the cross is that Jesus, who is the king of the cosmos, perfect and innocent, he dies for criminals. You and me, we deserve to be hung as traitors on the gallows, but Jesus comes and hangs for us on the cross. What happens on the cross is that he who knew no sin becomes sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Jesus does is he exchanges lifetime earnings with us. He says, you take my perfect life and all the blessing that I've earned, and I'll take your death, your sin, and all the wrath that 
you've earned. You've violated the law. You're a lawbreaker. You deserve the justice of God. But I am going to take the justice of God for you so that you might live, so that you might be loved. And not only that, I'm going to go into that death more fully than you could in an entire eternity. And I'm going to come out the other side alive to prove the effectiveness of my sacrifice, to prove that those who are united with me by faith in my death will also be united with me in my resurrection. Jesus tells us, I am the resurrection and the life. And what the dying Christ secures for us, the risen Christ sees that we get peace with God. Look at verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Four days isn't insignificant here. There was a kind of a traditional belief that the body would hang, or the body, the soul would hang out above the body for three days or until like real decomposition set in, hoping to re-enter it. And so after three days, it was said, uh, the soul, it went on. And so what, what they do by, what Jesus does by waiting four days until the fourth day is he lets everybody know that Jesus is dead, dead, like really dead. Not a little bit dead like Princess Bride, but very dead, right? Jesus is going to a place where all hope has been lost. Lazarus is dead, dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, 18, less than two miles away from where Jesus had been. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you, Jesus? Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. This is kind of a casual, trite interchange. She thinks that Jesus is just offering kind of casual condolences, right? I'm sorry for your loss. And she's like, thank you. I know he'll rise in the general resurrection. And what Jesus does in the next sentences is he's going to say, you're not getting it, Martha. I want you to take your hope off of some general resurrection off in the future that you can't really get your hands on. And I want you to put it in me. I am the one who brings resurrection. I am the one who gives life. Put your hope in me. This is what he says. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. This is incredible. This is incredible. Do you see how incredible this is? Jesus is saying that those who believe in him, even though they will die physically, they will continue to live metaphysically. And not only that, they will be in the future raised bodily. An implication of that is this. The life that we will have in eternity as God's people, Christian, is already in you. 
eternal life is in you. The only thing that's missing is to finally be free from the presence of sin completely and a sweet new body. This is incredible. It means that you are able to, you're no longer enslaved to sin. It means you are free to live to righteousness under the easy yoke of Jesus. It means that that the Holy Spirit is able to cultivate you and to grow up fruit within you, to make you more loving, to make you more like God. And the second part of this is awesome too. Like, Like He's going to resurrect us bodily. This, this is incredible. And Jesus just kind of throws this on Martha. And he says, do you believe this? She responds, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. And Jesus says, if you believe that, Let me show you. Let me show you what I've just told you. As his interchange with Mary, which we already looked at, and then after weeping at the tomb, we read in verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again. Uh, The the phrase deeply moved there is not a great translation, and it's probably in every one of our Bibles because the word in Greek doesn't really have an equivalent. It's, It's the idea of an animal snorting in derision, like a horse, nostrils flaring, snorting, like angry. I actually like the way Tim Keller translates it. He says, uh, it means to quake with rage. You see, when Jesus is deeply moved and troubled here, he's angry. He is angry at sin. He is angry at death. And he is going to do something about it. It's like he can't wait to be killed himself and raise up victorious. He wants a little foretaste of victory now. Then Jesus, quaking with rage, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, told Jesus, Lord, there's already already a stench because he's been dead four days. Uh, If you have a King James Version, this is just a sidebar. This is a gem. Uh, The word there is that it will stinketh. If you can get a stinketh, that's good. But the only thing that, that stinketh here is Martha's faith. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the resurrection and the life. I believe you are the Messiah. Roll away the stone. Jesus, the body going to stink it. She's not expecting the unbelievable. She hasn't wrapped her mind around Jesus' power. And perhaps she doesn't fully believe it. Perhaps her faith is being revealed for what it is. Shallow. Jesus has the power to produce glory from your suffering. Do you trust him? Lord, there's a stench. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I've said this so that they may believe you sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips, and with his face wrapped in cloth, Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. The raising of Lazarus is a picture of what happens spiritually to each and every Christian, to each and every person who believes in Jesus. They are dead, they hear the voice of Christ and the word of God, and they are brought to life. This is extraordinary. Lazarus come out, and he comes out like zombified and mummified. And I imagine like this is a really intense passage, it's really serious, but I imagine it was kind of funny. Like, he can't walk, he's in those grave clothes, like, unwrap him. Like, he'll have people over, they're probably all standing around stunned. He's like, unwrap him already, I'm trying to move. I think it shows us, it's one of the ways that we, we see in Lazarus that his resurrection is but a pale imitation of Jesus' resurrection. You see, when Jesus resurrects, he's not wrapped in grave clothes. His clothes are folded up. And the reason for this is that Jesus' resurrection is greater than the resurrection of Lazarus. Because Lazarus died again. But Jesus raised to never die again. And, and here's one of the most beautiful things about the gospel. We share not in a resurrection like Lazarus that's temporary, not going to die again. We share the resurrection of Jesus. Eternal life with God. An eternal vision of God's glory. Perhaps you're going through suffering this morning and you're going, I can't, this doesn't make any sense. Where is God? Where are you, Jesus? How could God let this happen? And the same questions persisted when Jesus died on the cross. Could God let this happen? How could any good come of this? And the questions persisted as the grave remained full on Saturday. Where is God? And on Sunday morning, Jesus rose up and said, I'm right here. I've been producing glory through the suffering the whole time. Lazarus' death didn't make sense. And then it did when Jesus raised him up. The cross didn't make sense, and now it does, because Jesus is risen. Your suffering may not make sense, but brother Christian, sister Christian, it will, because there is a resurrection coming. God is going to swallow your suffering up with glory. I have, I've had three kids. Well, Chelsea has. I didn't really participate. I always hate when guys are like, my wife and I are pregnant. Like, no, you're not. She's pregnant. 
You're not carrying that thing around. You're not going to deliver it. I mean, me, when Chelsea gave birth to Owen, I literally was sitting there next to the, the bedside eating some Chipotle and watching a football game, all right? She was okay with it. I'm a good husband. <laughs> but what happens when you give birth to children is you have these wonderful things, that's sarcasm, called labor pains. It's excruciating. It's terrible. It's awful. But then, glory. I always ask myself, why on earth would any woman, having done that once, why would you do it again? And here, here's your answer. Because the thrill and the joy of beholding that baby, the joy of beholding that glory makes all the suffering worth it. And get this, it justifies the suffering. Likewise, whatever suffering you encounter in your life, whatever trial you are going through, yes, it feels like labor pains right now, but when Jesus comes back, glory. Let us not be so short-sighted in our suffering. Let us instead look to the author and finisher of our faith. Let us grasp, hold the hand of God and walk through the darkness with him. Even smiling as we see a rainbow through our tears. Knowing that Jesus has brought us peace with God. Knowing that the tomb is empty and that the throne is occupied. Delighting in the truth that when Jesus was dying on the cross, he said, it is finished, not I am finished. Because he was just getting started. And he is not finished producing glory in us yet. Let's pray. God, you are so good that you have taken our screw-up, our sin, our brokenness. And you found a way to glorify yourself and to bless us through it. You redeem suffering. You are that good. You are that God. The God who has ordained suffering, the God who suffers with us, the God who has suffered for us, and the God who ends all suffering and turns it into glory. We give you praise this morning. We give you praise.